0: be prosperity for the people, together with liberty for the people.
1: The question is, why are we supporting
0: El Salvador? No, the the question was,
2: why are we killing priests in El Salvador?
0: The
1: answer is, we're not. Now you be quiet.
0: President Christiani is trying to do a job for democracy, and the left-wing guerrillas
1: Getting obsessed with John Pilger's work. I've used him in like uh, five out, out of my last um, last uh, interviews. Um, that's from uh, the War on Democracy and uh, it's out of Guatemala, the coup in 1954. We're gonna play more of John Pilger. It always enhances the show to to go back and look at his work. Uh, I mean, still, even now, he's still producing great stuff. World's finest journalist and uh, finest filmmaker. That's my opinion, and not just mine, but many others. I'm Randy Critical. this is Randy Critical live on the fly, uh, Assange Countdown to Freedom. Uh, we are uh, gonna continue our discussion on Nicaragua. It was the anniversary a few weeks back, uh, like nine days ago, and we had Alejandro Vendania, uh, who's a, a real vocal critic of, of the Sandinista government. He's a former, gotta go back and look at it, all right? He's, real, I, he's a friend of mine. I have a lot of friends in Nicaragua, and uh, that watch the show uh, with uh, Ben. Downey. They're probably not going to like this one as nearly as much. And 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 I I really admire and I love all my friends down there that I met back in the 80s. Cesar, uh down there from uh, Inca San Juan, uh, Cookie Hood, uh, who now she was the CBS bureau chief. Abby Fields, uh, who have been there since '85, uh, '83. You know, she's she still lives there. Uh, Charlie Castaldi, Gioconda Belli, Sofia Montenegro. Uh, you know, I have a lot of friends down there that, um, you know, I uh, played a big part in my life. Uh, and a lot of the friends I had down there are no longer with us. Oh, by the way, I gotta mention Paco Valencia, who contributed to the show. Thank you, Paco. Um, and uh, he was down there. But, you know, we lost a lot of good friends uh, back in, in the 80s, in, including um, um, Ian Walker. And I'm gonna do a show on Ian Walker. I'm gonna dedicate a show to uh, the great writer, Ian Walker, who tragically died uh, way back in 1990, I believe. Uh, and then uh, Cornell, I love my name of Cornell. I can't think of his last name, but uh, a Dutch cameraman that was killed covering the Salvadoran elections and so many others. I, I just don't have time to, to list them all. I will, because this is a long interview with Ben Norton from the, the Grey Zone, Grey Zone News and we're gonna get to that um, uh, in just uh, one second. Um, But uh, first, let's kind of set the stage here. Uh, We're gonna play uh, an excerpt from uh, John Pilger's, uh, uh, the same uh, film, Uh, this is uh, The War on Democracy, and uh, take a look at this. Uh, This is a a very interesting clip, and uh, we'll uh, come right back uh, and talk about it in a second. Since
3: President Reagan came to power, this
1: threat has been turned
3: increasingly against Nicaragua there have been bombing raids flown by insurgents based in Costa Rica to the south and from Honduras to the north the CIA directs pays and arms former members of Somoza's National Guard known as the Contra some of whom are trained in illegal camps in Florida last July the secret war came into the open with the arrival of Nicaragua of two American naval task forces, each with more firepower than the entire U.S. fleet in World War II. Today, 4,000 American combat troops are poised in Honduras, near the border. Ranged against them in Nicaragua are 45 aging Eastern Bloc tanks unsuitable for mountainous jungle and which are liable to break down after 125 miles, plus three antiquated Korean War jets, two helicopters, a navy consisting of a few patrol boats, a regular army of 22,000 and 25,000 reserves, and a militia. In addition to the threat from outside, the Nicaraguans face 15,000 of these troops, the Contra, heavily armed by the Americans and operating a hit-and-run war from Honduras. This is effectively a CIA private army. Its original aim was to stop the alleged flow of arms from the Sandinistas to the guerrillas in El Salvador. But this was no more than a cover no convincing proof has ever been produced in public to substantiate a continuing flow of arms a pretext described by a member of the senate intelligence committee as a farce the real aim of the contra is to give the appearance of a civil war in nicaragua by hitting economic targets and killing people like midwives okay
1: that was from the war on democracy and it's it's it, it, a lot of it's Nicaragua. A lot of it is, um, is uh, most of it is about Venezuela and uh, and this US imperialism and the century of it uh, in, in Latin America, or even longer than that now, it's 120 years, uh, Get go to johnpilger.com. Uh, but uh, at any rate, we are going to talk about Assange with Ben Norton for the uh, first part of the show. And then we're gonna concentrate on uh, on Nicaragua and, and the, the controversy right now um, between ex sandinistas and Sandinistas that are part of the Ortega government. You know I'm, I'm caught right in the middle, I have friends on both sides and it's a you know it's one of those very uncomfortable uh, positions uh, to be in. So uh, we are going to give a different point of view here. Uh, we gave one uh, last week, uh, eight days ago, and uh, we're going to give another one here right now with Ben Norton, a very young, but very, uh, a very uh, excellent uh, journalist. You know, he, uh, like I said, young and, and, and really smart. So we'll be back with him uh, right after this um, brief, not brief, it can be like a minute and a half. This is the music that I love so much from back when I was in Nicaragua in the 80s. And this is from the Concert for Peace in Managua in 1983. We'll be right back
2: Es escribir el libro del pueblo con sangre y fuego, los nombres de los anónimos, forjadores de esta siembra. Es hablar de la esperanza y del amor que nos cuesta. El lenguaje del hombre y su libertad, que aunque tenga que matar, el amor, el amor es su objetivo, el corazón anima, te llevo de hombre imperfecto, como un pájaro en ruido, Amor, su vanidad hacia tu pecho Por eso he de concluir sin que mi guitarra duerma Que ningún golpe es mortal si no se teme a la muerte.
1: from a live concert in Managua in 1983. We're going to play about uh, three or four of those clips over the course of this uh, show. Um, and um, by the way, I'm Randy Credico, this is Randy Critical Live on the Fly, Assange Countdown to Freedom. And as I uh, gave a uh, big intro to, he's joining us right now from Nicaragua, uh, and that is uh, a great young journalist, uh, Ben Norton. Uh, welcome back, Ben. The last time I saw you, we worked together in a studio interviewing other people,
4: All right? Yeah, thanks for having me, Randy. It's good to be back. Unfortunately, since the last time we spoke, not only has the world kind of come to an end with coronavirus, it's it's been cr- pretty crazy to see, but also, this situation with assange the topic of our last conversation has gotten even worse and even more kind of orwellian the total just the kangaroo court that he's going through right now right now uh, of
1: course i this is like my, my 37th show that i've done assange countdown to freedom they haven't all been 100 percent about assange uh but uh, the situation since then when we last saw, and that was, we had, we had some great Indian food nearby. And that, yeah. that was it. That was last time I was on Sixth Street at that studio. And of course, it's totally spiraled out of control. Uh, and I don't know, I, I guess you're, you're, you're staying apprised of it all. Uh, what, what is your, your current, uh, your current uh, observation or assessment uh, from down there in Nicaragua? Uh, I know you're you're informed. It doesn't matter where you are; you're staying pretty much uh, informed on on the uh, current crisis in London with uh, the persecution of Julian Assange.
4: Well, we've seen many things from from Julian's lawyers who say that they have no access to him; they can't talk to him. We've seen these hearings that are being done on Zoom on. Different streaming platforms. It's 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 insane. I mean I use the term kangaroo court. That's really what it is It's it's a kind of farce the idea that he's being given a fair trial No one can look at this and and come away with that conclusion. It's absolutely insane and it's terrifying and what's for me what's even more troubling and what just really frustrates me is seeing the cowardice of so many people in the media in the corporate media who refuse to speak out for Assange, or when they do so, they will only speak out kind of tepidly and use very qualified language, saying, well, you know, I'm against what WikiLeaks did, but I don't think Assange should be thrown in prison for it. Things like that. That And and I strongly disagree. I think WikiLeaks is a model for everyone around the world. They're a model of effective muckraking journalism and transparency. And these are all governments that claim to be transparent, that claim to be committed to exposing the the truth and and telling their citizens what they're actually doing but they actually are committed to destroying the most important transparency organization in the world and we just as another prime example of that at the gray zone we just published an article this month on transparency international this is the leading group that supposedly fights corruption that supposedly defends the rule of law and transparency and they and a contributor to our, our media outlet he contacted transparency international about assange and they refused to comment on the case they said we have no comment this this is the most prominent transparency activist on earth in transparency international which by the way happens to be funded by the u.s state department and the british foreign office no really comment on him
1: wow so they definitely are are in the tank uh you know we stephen kinzer uh, who was Where you are right now, probably a few blocks away, uh, in that Los Robles neighborhood. I was at his house uh, many times uh, back then, and um, you know he said it the other day. He was very critical of of the media basically um, being uh, using talking points from the State Department, and we're talking about the media that's critical of William Barr and Donald Trump. Uh, who are the ones right now prosecuting Julian Assange? I mean, as bad as the Obama administration was uh, g- going after whistleblowers, uh, whether it be Snowden, which they tried to catch, um, uh, whether it be uh, John Kirioku, uh and Chelsea Manning and many others, uh, Thomas Drake, uh, they didn't. Uh, they didn't go after Assange. So right now, it is William Barr who to the people in media criticize every single day but they don't seem to, to uh, find the space to be critical of him uh in the uh, prosecution of julian assange do you find that a uh, uh, kind you know a little uh contradictory
4: no it's it's absolutely insane and it's yet another example of how the liberal resistance or what we can jokingly call the mic resistance to trump they only criticize him on superficial points. Well, some, some of the points are important, but many of them are superficial, like Russiagate being a prime example of that. And then meanwhile, they actively support his most egregious crimes whenever he wages war, when he imposes crippling sanctions on entire countries, and sanctions are a form of war, economic war. So the embargo of Venezuela, which is a suffocating blockade that has prevented Venezuela from buying medicine and food, and that has led to the, de- the preventable deaths of tens of thousands of civilians. The Democrats are totally on board with that, and members of the same MiC resistance are on board with that. The same with Nicaragua here. With every few months, there are new sanctions, and in fact, the last round of sanctions that the Mike Pompeo State Department and the Department of the Treasury imposed under Muchen, a a creature of Wall Street and the b- big banks when they imposed sanctions on Nicaragua here a few months ago, they the not only did the Democratic Party support it, but you even had respectable members of the human rights industry, including Human Rights Watch itself, in the middle of the coronavirus pandemic, they praised the Trump administration for putting sanctions on Nicaragua. Iran, of course, is another great example. We, we see a total bipartisan support for these egregious crimes that are resulting in the deaths Of tens probably hundreds of thousands of civilians and what's so wild to me is that today among maybe some anti-war activists and some progressives there's some consciousness of the horrors that US-led UN sanctions unleashed on Iraq and right after the first Gulf War and in the 1990s famously Madeleine Albright the Secretary of State under Bill Clinton in a 60 Minutes interview she she infamously said that she thought it was worth it that 500,000 Iraqi children dying because of these sanctions that were so egregious that the UN humanitarian coordinator in Iraq actually quit, calling it a form of genocide. Meanwhile, those were sanctions that were, of course, they were criminal and murderous, but they were multilateral UN sanctions. The US is imposing unilateral, illegal sanctions on numerous countries around the world that are just as deadly, that are just as suffocating, and not only is there silence in the corporate media, there's actual support from the Democratic Party that claims to oppose Trump.
1: Right, uh, look, I, I was appalled when uh, Nancy uh, Pelosi stood up and uh, recognized Juan Guaido uh, at the State of the Union. She actually stood up Uh, that day. And of course, Europe, uh, the European Union uh, supports Juan Guaido, the British uh, Barclays, or whoever, Bank of uh, England, Uh, they gave him a billion dollars in gold that belongs to the Venezuelan people. Uh, It's really appalling. Uh, People who want to know about the history of uh, Venezuela, I I urge them to watch the film, The War on Democracy, uh, by John Pilger. I mean, it is really brilliant. And in fact, we're going to play a little uh, a clip of that uh, war on democracy. This is not um, strictly on uh, on eighty percent is about U.S. past in in uh, Venezuela uh, supporting the coup against um, against Hugo Chavez, who won election ten times, um, or his party did. Uh, but it goes into the past and it goes regionally and and this one is is guatemala which i want to talk to you about guatemala and i got to get into nicaragua without pissing off my friends down there you know because i have i have friends down there that have a different point of view than you do and, and it's 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 a very difficult spot that i'm in uh because i spent a lot of time In Nicaragua and I have a view from back then and I have a view right now but we'll get into that but I just want to show this little piece this is from uh, the war on democracy which everyone should get in fact I would I would recommend that people watch all of John Pilger's movies they are such a great education particularly if you are in lockdown teach your children well as Crosby Phils and Nash and Young would say and they should teach them well by uh, giving them access to the films that are online at JohnPilger.com. Here is from the uh, War on Democracy. In
3: 1950, this man, Jacobo Abenz, became the first Guatemalan leader to be democratically elected by a majority of his people who saw in him the hope of social justice. He was the Hugo Chavez of his day.
1: What was going on in Guatemala is that there was a democratically elected president um, in 1950, Jacobo Abenz, who who sought to institute a series of New Deal-style reforms in which the state had a greater role in both developing the economy and redistributing wealth. And the centerpiece of that was a land reform. Abenz was far from radical.
3: His land reform policies were modest. But Washington was having none of it. Howard Hunt was then working for Alan Dulles' CIA. So they said a decision has been made at the highest
0: levels of our government to rid Guatemala of the Arbenz uh, regime, and uh, we would like you to participate in it. Uh, You will be uh, the chief of uh, propaganda and political action.
1: In Guatemala, what the CIA did was mobilize every facet of American power. It didn't just isolate Guatemala militarily and diplomatically, but it used the techniques of social psychology in the nearly year-long campaign, which created a sense of crisis in Guatemala.
0: What we wanted to do was have a terror campaign uh, to terrify our bench, particularly, terrify his his troops, much as the German Stuka bombers terrified the population of of, uh, Holland, uh, Belgium, and, uh, and Poland at the onset of World War II.
3: And that's what they did so that the United States could control the economy of Guatemala, destroying the dreams of its people.
0: We sowed confusion through the countryside and of course we had by this time we had aircraft flying over and dropping leaflets and doing a little
3: harmless bombing a little harmless bombing and a CIA terror campaign cost thousands of lives our Benz the Democrat now branded a communist was humiliated Strip naked, and photographed before being forced into exile.
1: All right, so uh, there you go. You got Guatemala, and and that's let's we're we're kind of like uh, morphing around here uh, on Guatemala because people are focused on Nicaragua. I I'm not happy. It's I'm not happy with the situation there the way i was there in in the 80s so i you know i was a young man i was your age at that time maybe even younger and i was totally thrilled and i was totally uh involved i was raising money i was doing my show down there i took comedians i did so many benefits uh for nicaragua Uh, you know it to me and i've been there since then but then i have to take a look all right you have nicaragua look at the country's next door to it all right let's take a look Uh, at the countries next door so we can get a a little bit of a perspective of how Nicaragua does separate itself politically from the countries around it culturally, politically, and economically and uh, Guatemala is one of them okay what is what is your take on the uh, let's just go go right across the board Guatemala Honduras uh, and El Salvador as vis-a-vis Nicaragua
4: Absolutely. Well, first of all, we should keep in mind, I mean, these are objective facts. Nicaragua is the safest country in Central America. It's the most equitable country in Central America with the highest representation of women in the government. In fact, Nicaragua actually is in the top five for representation of women in the government in the entire world. And unlike its neighbors, Nicaragua doesn't have rampant problems of drug trafficking, gangs, and it's, it's, it's compared to its neighbors in Central America, Nicaragua is extremely safe. Its neighboring countries are some of the most violent countries on earth. Honduras and El Salvador have consistently, especially until recently, they had the highest murder rates on earth. They have huge problems with drugs and cartels and gangs. And Nicaragua is a kind of an, a, an island of a beacon of stability in an otherwise very, very turbulent region. I mean, you mentioned Guatemala. Guatemala is a really egregious case, especially of what we should not only call imperialism, but frankly, we have to call kind of neo-colonialism, the the case of what US foreign policy is in Latin America. Because under Obama, of course, we saw a variety of coups. We saw the, the soft coup against the Workers' Party, progressive government in Brazil, which installed an unelected neoliberal regime of Michel Temer, which paved the way for the fascist regime of Jair Bolsonaro. So that was under Obama. We saw the beginning of sanctions against Venezuela under Obama. We saw the coup in Honduras against the democratically elected progressive, not socialist, just progressive government of Jose Manuel Zelaya in, in Honduras in 2009. So those are all things that Obama oversaw. And those are all imperialist crimes that are indisputable. But under Trump, it's definitely true that they've taken the mask off they've just let it fall completely and numerous members of the trump administration have invoked the monroe doctrine which is a nearly 200 year early 19th century colonial doctrine in which the u.s said that uh, that latin america is its own colonial backyard and we saw that that former national security advisor john bolton repeatedly invoked the monroe doctrine mike pompeo This ogre, this war criminal who runs the State Department, former CIA director, he has invoked the Monroe Doctrine. So this is colonial language. This is the outlook of the Trump administration. And Guatemala is a prime example of that. Recently, Guatemala had an election, like many of the elections in Guatemala, deeply contested, probably stolen. I mean, they don't have free and fair elections. And who won? Alejandro Gemetti. Alejandro Gemetti is, who is this guy? A, he, prison, the way, a
1: prison guard
4: right for, he, he ran the prisons of Guatemala before not not just a guard he was the head of the prisons and when he oversaw the prisons he oversaw brutal repression and the death of people who protested the conditions inside this brutal prison system another thing about Alejandro Giamatti which is not that well known this is a guy who is an Italian citizen who has spent a huge part of his life abroad And what's really wild is there was a scandal several months ago. that didn't get that much attention. It got no attention in English language media, where Gemetti, the right-wing Guatemalan president, and some of his staff, they tried to illegally enter Venezuela by using their other civilian passports. So his Italian passport and some of his top aides were using Italian and Spanish passports. Instead of using their Guatemalan passports, because they knew that the, the the venezuelan government probably wouldn't let them enter they were trying to enter with their european passports because they don't recognize the the, the elected maduro government they recognize Juan guaidó and they were trying to enter venezuela illegally to do a photo op with Juan guaidó this is the guy who an italian citizen who tries to conspire with Juan guaidó is who's running guatemala right now i mean it's the perfect symbol of this the kind of neo-colonial U.S. control that that Washington has reasserted over the region. It's really sad. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so
1: Guatemala has a horrible history. We talked about it uh, uh, the other day uh, in, in my conversation with uh, with uh, Stephen Kinzer, and we, we played some clips uh, from, uh, from Mr. Pilger's great film. Uh, and Guatemala is a horror story. Uh, and. Um, it, it's very
4: sad, all right, what what has happened there. Uh, let's let's get back well, to, well, to really Honduras. quickly, Randy, on, on the note of Guatemala, one last note. We, we have actually one of the most crystal-cut clear cases of genocide in history in Real Guatemala Somalia. in the 1980s, and the US government under Reagan was totally involved. And, and I would be remiss if I didn't mention the leading role of Elliot Abrams. Elliot Abrams was one of the key point men under the Reagan administration. Of course, Reagan was at that point, you know, really out of it, kind of like Joe Biden. I mean, he was suffering from serious dementia. And he he hired these war criminals with who are sociopaths. Elliot Abrams is a total sociopath. And Elliot Abrams was re, was brought back in by the Trump administration. And Elliot Abrams is and the Secretary of State under Pompeo, he is overseeing the Venezuela coup policy. Yeah. And in the nineteen eighties it was The Elliot Abrams and John Negroponte and these criminals who oversaw support for the genocidal dictatorship of Efrain Rios Montt, who committed an extermination campaign against the indigenous Maya population and was tried at the International Court and convicted for genocide. The U.S. had its hands all over that. I remember it very well. It's so criminal. This history in Central America is not well known. And it, it's really, it's some of the worst examples of US imperialism, worse, well, even worse than like Pinochet. Which I, is was, I know how bad Rio Schmont was. I know how bad they are. I was
1: there uh, and it was, uh, I was very nervous when I went there in 87, 88 uh, into Guatemala City. Uh, and I know what Reagan said. He said, Rio Smont got a bum rap and, and he's a good man. You know, if he ever said someone was a good man, he was an asshole, all right? So I know about that, and I know about uh, El Salvador, uh, when you had um, you had all of those uh, uh, Catholic nuns that were murdered there. Uh, you had Archbishop Romero who was murdered there back in the 80s. I, I did feel safe in Nicaragua. I, I did feel safe in that country back then. I did not feel comfortable in El Salvador, did not feel comfortable in Honduras when I was there, or Guatemala in the 80s uh, and a little better in Costa Rica uh, back then it was a little more it was a lot more civilized but well, Nicaragua is also much I richer always,
4: we have to keep that in mind it has a lot more money
1: i know and so does panama but 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 uh, nicaragua which is a poor country it's rich in its land and rich rich in its food and uh, they probably have more if uh, samosa hadn't turned so much of the staple crop uh, uh, area into cattle feeding uh, plantations or, or farms. Uh, but I was down there just, I don't know, five or six years ago. I went to, I went to the 10-year reunion in in and uh, a celebration in, in, this, in 1989, and I went to the 30-year one in 19, uh, or 2000. 2009. Uh, 2009. And I, I must say that uh, I, I did feel comfortable. I went down to San Juan del Sur, I went to Ometepe, uh, I did, you know, I, I, I took the buses from, uh, uh what is it? Uh, uh, Wimbis, uh Humberto Wimbus, whatever that, uh, grocery big open air market is. I used to take the bus down there. It was a three hour ride, a lot of stops, but I always felt com- comfortable, uh, but I didn't ever. In those other countries surrounding uh, that area. That being said, I did not feel comfortable going down to um, San Juan del Sur uh, in a cab sometimes and just being pulled over at random by these uh, Sandinista police. I mean, you know, there may be a reason for it, but it's just something that I was not comfortable with. And, uh, you know, I'm sure all of these countries in in South America or Central America do the same thing. Uh, And these guys were not brutal. They weren't brutal they weren't they didn't joust them. they didn't rouse me but the, the fact is is that i, I idealize it uh that uh, that would not happen but it did happen and maybe there's a reason for it that you could explain
4: well it's never happened to me and i spent a lot of time here not just this all of this year but in the past as well it's never happened to me but i mean of course no country's perfect and, and we should we shouldn't idealize countries we should understand them in their particular material conditions with all of the contradictions you know especially in a very poor region like central america or a very poor region in general like latin america which is one of the the poorest regions on earth and i think there's a lot of people on the north american and the european left who often try to they try to impose all of their their visions and their their fantasies for what they would like to see in their societies on these poor countries in the global south that are dealing with so many problems and have all these imperfections and It's it's really ironic. And I'm not saying this about you at all Randy. I'm just saying that in general about the US left and the European left is that frequently people can't really accomplish very significant systemic change. So they put all their eggs in, in the basket of other countries and and endlessly criticize other countries but they can't actually, the US left, unfortunately, is weaker than it's ever been and can't really accomplish much.
1: I don't but even know if there get, is a left.
4: Back- wait,
1: wait, wait, wait I, I, there's a, a point there. All right, so the people who may criticize that, being stopped going you know, at random. I mean, in New York City, there was uh, like two million stops and frisk and what's going on in Portland right now, and what goes on across the country in the US, people are pulled over without cause. There are checkpoints everywhere. So anyone here can't criticize what goes on there. All right, Uh, and and pretend like that's unique, because it happens here all the time. That's why you have 3 million people in prison in this country. And the the entire uh, police apparatus uh, does engage in random uh, arbitrary uh, searches and stops and so you could you could classify this country as as a semi fascist country uh, with these uh, local and state governments now the federal government in Portland uh, doing the same thing what are your thoughts from yeah,
4: that Trump said in CBP and ice to go round up protesters with what authority using the Patriot Act I mean, that—that that is fascist behavior. Wait, and they're rounding the up protesters and throwing them into unmarked cars. Wait a second, that was a patriot act? Or is that the NDAA? Is that like they can actually, that's,
1: that's the justification? He's using the power that Congress gave him?
4: Exactly, which act? is why Barbara Boxer, the former Democratic representative, just pu- published an op-ed saying, I regret voting to create DHS. But all of these Democrats gave the power that, that Trump is now abusing, they happily, happily gave it over to the Bush administration on a silver platter and continue to do so again and again and again. You know, what's his name? I mean, uh, President
1: Obama would like sign these bills like the NDAA, he'd put the, the Patriot Act in stone and say, uh, I don't like what I'm doing and I don't plan to do it, but I'm gonna sign it anyway. And then you have uh, people like uh, Claire McCaskill who was the deciding uh, voice or uh, vote on on the extension of, of mass surveillance by the NSA and so they've actually given this Frankenstein like extra judicial power that's legal
4: that's exactly right that's exactly right and and getting back to your point about corruption, it's like look yeah, of course there's corruption in every country and and this is not wet boundary I mean if no country's perfect so i don't I don't dispute that. Sometimes people in Nicaragua have issues with corruption, but we always have to understand it in the context of the region of Central America where the corruption in neighboring countries is just mind-boggling, where in Honduras it's basically a failed state. I mean, I didn't even mention what happened after the coup. I mean, right now, the, the dictator of Honduras, the so-called president, Juan Orlando Hernandez, who goes by Ho, J-O-H, he is, is so corrupt That his brother Tony Hernandez is actually in prison in the US because he was a a US federal court in New York found him guilty of trafficking thousands of tons of cocaine and machine guns and not only that El Chapo Guzman the most notorious drug drug lord on earth admitted that he gave 1 million dollars of US dollars in cash to Tony Hernandez in order to give to his brother Juan Orlando Hernandez, which he used to fund his so-called re-election campaign in Honduras, which he stole anyway, because even the Organization of American States, which is a right-wing puppet of the US, which helped carry out the fascist coup in Bolivia, even they acknowledged that the coup, that the election to so supposedly re-elect Juan Orlando Hernandez in Honduras was totally illegitimate. So, I mean, this is, this is a, a narco regime run by a corrupt drug trafficker installed by the US government and propped up by the Honduran military, which is trained by the US military, which has the largest US military base in, in all of Latin America, the Sotocano Air Base in Honduras. So yeah, I mean, I don't, of course, Nicaragua still has its issues, but it's just, we, always, we always have to compare apples to apples and not apples to oranges, right? So we always have to compare Nicaragua to its neighbors.
1: Well, I, I do. I, I, I understand that. And 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 uh, we agree on uh, on points. We may disagree on other points. You know, like like I said, I'm stuck in the middle and I'm 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 playing the part today, not as an activist, but as an objective journalist, even though I'm not a trained journalist, but I, I did have someone on the other day who I do respect who who laid out the history of Nicaragua better than anybody ever has. Now we may have issues afterwards, but there was I haven't had anyone who knows the history of Nicaragua, at least up until 1979, better than Alejandro Bendaña. And uh, he made a lot of points uh, that were uh, points about, there really isn't an organized, uh, like there wasn't the last couple of elections, an organized uh, candidate that they all could get behind. Uh, that uh, would would satisfy the needs of the average person. I want to talk to you about the average person, about uh, the campesinos, about people that uh, live in Ometepe, uh, about uh, you know just the low wage, low paid uh, uh, Nicaraguan uh, citizen. But we're gonna play. We're gonna take a quick break, and we'll come back and we'll talk more about Nicaragua. Here's some more music. Uh, from that great concert for peace in Nicaragua uh, in 1983 in Managua, the four-year anniversary of the uh, Sandinista revolution.
5: Una estrella dulce en el cañaveral, saeta de mil colores, dentro de los rumores del pajonal. ¡Eh! Entre en el hueco de su guitarra, el lucero limpio de su corazón, se fue arriba, arriba para la sabana, como un hilo de agua serenito. Dice Martillano que en la montaña, revolucionario todo es allí. Cada clandestina una mariposa Y su responsable es un colebri Cada
1: clandestina una mariposa Y su responsable es un colebri Some great music uh, in Nicaragua. You know, I love the Godoys. That wasn't the Godoys. Maybe it was the band that... Uh, that um, was from Concert for Peace, 1983. And, and we, last week we played Mercedes Sosa, the great Argentine uh, singer, uh, and we played uh, the Godoy brothers and um, even played a campaign ad with the Himmel de Sandinista. Uh, that was, my, was for me when I ran against Bill de Blasio, the faux Sandinista in uh, 2013. So uh, Ben, um, talking about the people, in Nicaragua, talking about the average person. Um, you've been around, you've been around that country, you, I mean, you float around. Um, what's your sense on the ground, uh, how people uh, feel about uh, the future of Nicaragua and about the, uh, the political uh, situation uh, at this point in time?
4: Well, you mentioned that there is some controversy among former supporters of the Sandinistas, and that's true. That's mostly true for the upper middle class, upper class and middle class former supporters. It's true that Sandinismo has lost its support from those sectors, but among working class and poor Nicaraguans, there is still very strong staunch support for Sandinismo. And it it actually reminds me of the situation in Venezuela. I spent about five months in Venezuela last year, and it's a very similar thing. When, When these movements are at their peak, and right after the revolutions and there's a lot of popular enthusiasm they often have the support of the middle class and even elements of the kind of upper middle class and then eventually when they face brutal attacks from imperialism when they face problems with sabotage when they they face other problems they lose the support of those middle classes and i think that explains one of the main reasons why there are former a lot of former sandinistas who have now Joined opposition groups, many of which are funded by the US government, and we can talk more about that later. Okay. But if you well, look well, at well, the. Well, basis let me of stop New you there North. for a
1: second. Let me stop you there for a second. When you say Sandinismo, it, it, is 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 Daniel Ortega and and uh, his his wife uh, are, are they the avatar of uh, of Sandinismo I mean they're the representatives or is it Sandinismo but not necessarily the current leaders of 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 this of the Sandinista party
4: FSLN Sandinismo is the Sandinista front it's the the Sandinista front of national liberation and the leaders of it right now are Daniel Ortega, absolutely. He's the leader and Vice President Murillo. And there are many other leaders who are also very impressive, who, who are often ignored by the same North American leftists who endlessly criticize Nicaragua. And they don't talk about Carlos Fonseca Tehran, who, and I would invite anyone who wants to see more about the current Sandinista ideology and philosophy, they, they could check out an interview I published with Carlos Fonseca Tehran at the Gray Zone, um, where he details some of the thought Going behind the policy and COVID, which we can talk about, about economic politics, economic policies and such. And there's still a very vibrant left inside Nicaragua that is working with the Sandinista Front. And the groups that claim to be on the left that are not part of the Sandinista Front are fringe, minor, and they're overwhelmingly dominated by middle class and upper middle class Nicaraguans who, ironically, claim that they care about poor and working-class Nicaraguans when they live in rich, upper-class neighborhoods, when they get their paychecks from the US government's National Endowment for for Democracy, which is a CIA cutout created by Ronald Reagan. So one of the main opposition groups to Sandinismo, which tries to claim the mantle of Sandinismo, it's called the MRS, the Movement for the Renovation of Sandinismo. all, most of its leaders are upper-class or middle-class former supporters of Sandinismo they have also tried to claim that mantle they in, in the last election they got a little over 1% of the vote so if we're su- talking about popular support for the Sandinista front I mean this is a group that they didn't even meet the threshold needed to enter to enter the Parliament this is a wait, group wait that a is second. absolutely there are fringe that and I their only that... support are in North American media outlets, U.S. government funded opposition media outlets here like La Prensa, which has a history of being funded by the NED and the CIA, or NGOs, which are funded by the U.S. government?
1: I, I know a lot of the people that you may be referring to, uh, and some uh, may uh, have um, that aura of, of um, being, um, you know, just upper upper class and only uh, are concerned with their own position but i know many people out there i mean i i was there i was there for for 6 years of my life i gave it my all and there are people who are very dedicated there extremely revolutionary and they you know you can't just say dismiss them as disgruntled uh, because they don't have the power I mean, you have to give them their due. They did. They were part of it. There are people that really struggled. People that that gave it their all. That wrote. Uh, that uh, mobilized. That uh, you know. Th- they were out there, and it's okay for them not to be uh, particularly happy with uh, Daniel Ortega, and not be anti-Sandinista. You know what I mean? I mean, can you give them? some space to say that there are people who are legitimately disgruntled uh, on legitimate grounds. Well, that there's a difference just...
4: between criticizing and becoming active opposition members who are funded by the U.S. government and act and actively support coup efforts. And many of these figures, not just in, in Nicaragua, but also in Venezuela, because there was a very similar movement in Venezuela called Critical Chavismo, of people who claimed to criticize the Chavista government from the left, who supported Hugo Chavez and then had falling outs. Or opposed Nicolas Maduro, who claimed that they're Chavistas. Meanwhile, many of those leaders this past year supported the coup attempt, supported Juan Guaido, met with Juan Guaido. There are numerous leaders of the critical Chavista movement who claim to be socialists, who had meetings in February 2019 with the Trump-backed coup leader, and like, likewise in 2018, there were many people who call themselves former Sandinistas who claim that they're still on the left, who. Are, who get their paychecks from the US I mean ideology is one thing but there's also material politics you can you can have an ideology but still act against that ideology and practice in your politics and people in Nicaragua who say that they want to mm-hmm. have a renovation of Sandinismo who were funded by the Trump State Department and the US Agency for International Development and who supported the coup in April of 2018 which was brutally violent I mean, it doesn't matter what your politics are because th- there's a long history, for instance, in the United States of Trotskyites, and I'm not saying that they're all Trots, I'm just saying that there is a history of Trotskyites, most famously, Max Schachman, who said that oh, I'm, I'm a Marxist and I'm a socialist and the Soviet Union is not truly socialist, who supported the Vietnam War, who supported the Korean War, who supported the Bay of Pigs invasion. I mean, ideology only goes so far ideology is only important insofar as it informs your actual political action and the thing about the sandanista front is the sandanista front is still a vibrant mass movement according even to the opposition's own polls which are fun- which are printed in la prensa printed in la confidencial these right-wing media outlets many of which are funded by the u.s government even their polling acknowledges that the sandinista front is by far the most popular party and that their own opposition groups have five percent of support three percent of support or in the case of the civic alliance which is one of the main opposition groups their own poll that La Prensa published a few weeks ago shows that they have 1% popular support. So the issue is what actually is happening is that there are former prominent members of the Sandinista movement who later left the movement. These are the ones who are the educated, more elites. I'm not saying that they're they're the richest people in society, society, but they're the ones who were educated in colleges in the United States. They're the ones who speak English they're the ones who have access to the media and they have influence in left-wing circles in the United States and other countries because they can speak that language of left-wing politics because they can speak English and they can influence people and, and then people in Jacobin Magazine or other outlets in the US, they think that these groups in Nicaragua, like the MRS, the Movement for the Renovation of Sandinismo, they think they have significant support but they can only win 1% in the election because their actual support is through the media and NGOs. It's not in working class barrios. In working class barrios, you can still see Sandinista flags everywhere. In fact, the, the core base of the Sandinista front are still the poorest people in Nicaragua. I've gone to the countryside, I've traveled quite a bit going in the buses, and you see poor people in the middle of nowhere with houses that are, you know, they don't even have doors on and they're waving the Sandinista flag because they understand that, yes, the Sandinista front might have issues, yes, the government might have issues, but it's the only party that, at the end of the day, cares for poor people and that the base of the party, the base of the party is the Sandinista youth. And if you look at the Sandinista youth, the vast majority of these people, I know many of them, I'm friends with them, I've interviewed them, the vast majority of the Sandinista youth militants, they're all volunteers, and they come from poor and humble families. The vast majority don't speak English. They have never had the opportunity to travel out of the country, yet alone go to Harvard University. And they, their first, their only experience outside of these, these working class barrios, and in some cases slums that don't even have paved roads, their only opportunity for getting good jobs, for getting opportunities in society is through the Sandinista front. I,
1: could you say that again? No, I'm kidding. I, uh, <laughs> was a, that was a handful there. So, um, look, I was in Ometepe, I was in Rivas, I was in other parts when I was at Esteli, Madagapa, and I know there is support for the Sandinista. Uh, the if, if you wanna say that that is the Frente Sandinista, that's the party. Uh, is it the soul? Does the legacy of Sandino only belong to them? They're the only ones that can claim uh, Sandino that the other, uh, that the critics can't claim. I, look, I know there's a liberal party, which was Somoza, I know there's a conservative, there's all sorts of parties. But you know, I, I really do, um, you know, I'm, I'm kind of stuck in the middle here because my heart is with uh, the Sandinista front. You know but I, as, as I look there are some things I just don't like and I, and I, I asked uh, my guest last week on Nicaragua uh, about certain things uh, I don't I, no matter what I can't win in this do you understand that I can't win I'm going to have some people who are going to say that I'm with those people and those people are going to say that I gave a platform to someone that's that's spouting propaganda I don't think that you are I think that, that that's a view there are some things that I, I'm, I'm, I'm trying to make sense of um, the, the, uh, connection to Obando Bravo or the Catholic church and the enactment of one of the most, uh, the most repressive, uh, abortion laws on the planet. Uh, how, how do you reconcile with that?
4: Well, it, it's actually, it's funny that you mentioned the role of the Catholic church, because this, that was made as a major concession to the Catholic church because the Catholic Church has been one of the main forces supporting the opposition against the Sandinista Front, and the Catholic Church returned the favor to the government by supporting the brutally violent 2018 coup, to such a degree that there is video of these fascist coup mongers. And we need to understand, I mean, these are brutally violent gangster elements, similar to the Contras, in 2018, who were armed by the US covertly, who were funded with large amounts of money, and who were involved in the drug trade. This is all pretty well established at this point. And yes, the government also responded with violence because they were being attacked. And yes, it's true that the state security forces, the police and military mm-hmm. did kill some people. But if you look at the deaths, the deaths are pretty even. And we're talking about hundreds of police and soldiers who were killed. These aren't peaceful protesters. This was a brutally violent coup attempt in 2018, similar to the brutally violent coup attempts carried out in 2014 and 2017 in Venezuela, where there were something called Guarimbas, these violent barricades that were erected across the country. This is the new CIA tactic of destabilization as you erect these violent barricades, you paralyze cities, and then you control who goes on the roads and then these heavily armed protesters who were armed covertly by the US and other forces, even there's elements of, of, of paramilitary groups linked to Colombia, of drug cartels who are arming these groups, and they kill people. And they not only kill, in the case of Nicaragua, they killed many Sandinista supporters. I have friends whose family members or whose friends or loved ones were murdered. I actually interviewed in one of the most tear-jerking moments of my life in Hinotepe, I interviewed a very humble, poor Sandinista militant who his brother and his father were tortured and murdered on camera in 2018 by these coup mongers backed by the US government who they killed them for being Sandinistas. And then after that, they lit their bodies on fire and threw them in the garbage. And then meanwhile, we're supposed to believe that there was a progressive uprising that the 2018 coup attempt was a progressive uprising i mean it's really insane and what's incredible is to see that some people who try to claim that mantle of sandinismo who left the sandinista front and are part of these very small fringe opposition groups they were they participated in the coup attempt they joined hands with people like juan sebastian chamorro these figures who are the most right-wing elements of nicaraguan society they created the, the the blue and white national unity front, which is a combination of the most right-wing and supposedly left-wing elements of the opposition. They created the Civic Alliance. I mean, these groups, they they claim that they support Sandinismo, they claim that they're left-wing, but all of their actions are right-wing. So at the end of the day, it doesn't really matter how much you can read of socialist theory if at the end of the day, you're going to take the actions of actually supporting what are a violent coup attempt? And anyway, getting back to answer your question, because I don't want to, I don't want to- Yes, sound we like got to move on, yourself. man. Well, but speaking of the Catholic Church, I mean, this is a very, these are very sensitive issues because people have lost their lives. I have very close friends here who, who had their friends murdered and tortured, who were afraid of being killed. They were sent death threats by these coup mongers in 2018. And then I have these people, I'm not saying this about you, Randy, but people at Jacobin Magazine, these people in New York, who call themselves socialists, who are portraying a Trump-backed fascist coup in as a progressive uprising. These are the same people last year in November, they portrayed the fascist coup in Bolivia as a progressive uprising against a so-called dictator. They said Evo Morales was a neoliberal dictator and that they supported the so-called progressive uprising. When, when meanwhile, we, Who they smeared us as authoritarian or whatever they they said that we were stupid for supporting evo morales and the MAS party because we said that it was a fascist coup backed by the trump administration bolivia is the example of what would happen if the 2018 coup actually succeeded in nicaragua and who else was involved in the coup i mentioned the catholic church played a key role and there's video of catholic priests going to these these the what are the nicaraguan version of the guarimbas which are called the tranques these barricades and these catholic priests would show up and they would bless and they would pray on they would pray they would pray for the right wing violent gangsters the mongers, who are the kind of ideological descendants of the contras these are the forces that the catholic church was supporting so yeah getting back to your point unfortunately the nicaraguan government has made concessions, and abortion's a good example of that, to try to appease the Catholic Church. And meanwhile, what was the response of the Catholic Church? Supporting a brutally violent coup attempt. So this is the situation that the Sandinista Front is dealing with. They've been dealt a very difficult hand, and they have made concessions. But I should mention on the issue of abortion, here's a list of all the countries in Latin America where abortion is legal. Cuba, Uruguay, there we go. Those are the only countries in Latin America: Cuba, Uruguay, and only Mexico City. In the rest of Mexico, it's not legal. So, in you know who also has equally, crit- equally brutal uh, laws against abortion: El Salvador, Dominican Republic, Guatemala, Honduras, Paraguay, Brazil. I mean. All of these countries have extremely bad abortion laws. All right, listen, I understand that. I don't
1: expect it from, I don't expect it from an enlightened revolutionary that had so many women. Nora Astorga, uh, who uh, was out there, uh, a major uh, figure, fighting figure, and then an ambassador to the UN. There are a lot of women, June Mulligan, who were out there fighting uh, in the Sandinista, uh, Back in the early days, before nineteen seventy nine, Ireland too. There are so many I, martyrs, but, but yes, there, there's tons of women. Uh, so it's I, I expect it from El Salvador. I expect it from yeah. understand realities of politics. I am not make that's not a case. I'm not making a case for the U.S. to go in there. I'm not making a case for Pompeo. Yeah. I'm oh, just I, like. I know, i know, just I'm not saying a, you are, Randy. I, I, know wanted, I If I didn't talk about these things, if I didn't talk about these things, they, people would say that I was just throwing softballs. So I'm, I'm, i I want to. And the other thing that. Well, well one, uh, And one I want to go. One back other quick note into, on
4: this, Randy, and 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 I really respect you for facilitating this conversation because a lot of people they refuse to have conversations like this with on different sides. So I I appreciate that a lot. On on the issue of abortion, another point that we need to talk about is that. You know the reality is that on the book nicaragua has very bad draconian abortion laws forbidding abortion but the reality is that if you talk to women including sandinista women the reality is that when it comes to enforcement of those laws they don't really enforce them and that there is a kind of underground people know that for abortion that, that the government doesn't talk about because the reality. Is that and you could say that this is an element of opportunism but the reality is that nicaragua like many poor countries in the global south is very religious this is a country where almost 100 percent of the population identifies as christian and there's a very big not only catholic but a very big growing evangelical population Yeah,
1: that's pretty scary so, the evangelical uh when i was there you'd see all these people with the orange shirts it, it, it would have been really cheap to fly to nicaragua if not for all of these uh you know evangelicals going down there uh to try to uh, recruit uh followers and you know that's something that i don't like you go to hot- motels and hotels they're all over the place you know trying to convert people into this like right-wing uh baptist or evangelical uh you know uh, religion um so I may have spoken too long about, about that part, about, about- Well, and
4: then the other point, I just want to reiterate on this issue of, of because a lot of people in the US left, they-, they There's no left
1: here, wait a second. There is no left, <laughs>
4: All right. Well, a lot of progressives in the US, they, they, they talk about abortion as if it's the only women's rights issue. And of course, I strongly, I, I, I agree with Cuba's model free abortion provided by the state and i think it's unfortunate that 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 that's not adopted in other countries we have to understand that the reasons in those other countries The sandinista front still has to win elections it's not like in cuba where they had a revolution and they don't have presidential elections they have a, a one party marxist leninist style model nicaragua is not that it's it's a democratic socialist model where they go through elections but Another point we should keep in mind is that there are many other forms of women's rights that we should talk about and one of the most important is that in Nicaragua there are laws on the books that that mandate in government institutions half of the seats have to be filled by women and that's something that You know people have critiques of Rosario Murillo one of the reasons if you and I've interviewed and asked a lot of questions because I was curious you know there's a lot of misinformation and I've asked a lot of young women including from very poor backgrounds who are members or militants in the Sandinista uh, youth. And they say that one of the things they like about Rosario Murillo is that she very strongly emphasizes the importance of the role of women in society. And she was one of the key advocates for pushing that law through that law through that mandates that, that half of government um, roles uh, have to be filled by women. And that they've actually, the Sandinista front has, has honored that law And if you look at international polls, this is not polls done by Nicaragua, international polls done by women's rights NGOs recognize that Nicaragua has the fifth best representation of women in the government. The only other government in Latin America that comes close is Cuba, and the US is way down on the list. So, I mean, yes, it's unfortunate, the abortion laws, but there are other laws when it comes to women's representation and there are other policies that are very impressive. And in the Sandinista youth, women play a very significant role in the Sandinista movement. And, and, the, and when we talk about Sandinismo, the Sandinista youth is the lifeblood of Sandinismo. They're the ones on the ground who are volunteering in the communities, delivering food to people. They're the ones who represent, I think the core of the Sandinista movement. Well, you can, Evita
1: Perón uh, had some progressive thoughts on women as well. Uh, so, you know, I'm, I'm not sure that that justified Juan Perón uh, being in power so long. That's another one of the criticisms. I, I'm one of those guys getting older, and I, you know, I'm suspicious of anyone that wants to be in power uh, continually. You got Trump that wants to be in power. You see this a lot. People that, once they get in, power corrupts. Uh, absolute power corrupts absolutely why is it uh, this is what i get from the other the people that oppose uh, ortega this is not for me all right and but i i'm kind of sympathetic to the question is why does he want to stay in power continually i mean you know it's like even uh, even the washington you know like all right i did my two terms and it's over uh, what is it about Ortega that, that he needs to be in for four terms or five terms? Is it because he feels he is the only one that can protect uh, Simonismo and, and, and the, uh, what's left of the gains of the revolution uh, in medicine and in health, I mean, in health and in education, wiping out uh, dengue fever. Is, is, that, is that what motivates him? I mean, is he an ideologue or is he power hungry? Your thoughts on that?
4: No, I think it's it's very clear that that Ortega is ideologically motivated. There's no there's no question. I mean, I I just attended his speech. He's extremely consistent in the speeches he's given over the years. You can listen to a speech he, he gave 40 years ago and this July, July 19th. And there's so many common there's basically entire sentences that are identical. Ideologically, he's he's been very consistent. And i think the sandinista front has been very consistent they did another thing we have to always keep in mind here is that the sandinista front began as a marxist leninist style model i mean it 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 was a national front a national liberation front so they had elements of the progressive enlightened bourgeoisie if you will they had social democrats and nationalists it was like many national liberation forces across the global south but the kind of ideological leadership were Marxist-Leninists seeing the FSLN as the vanguard party. And then what happened is, with the Contra-terrorist war and all of that, that, that you know inf- infinitely more intimately than I do, that, and then the embargo, they lost the election, and, 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 and in 1990, the neoliberal era began. And you what know what, wait a
1: second, Ben. I think this is a good point to play about uh, the embargo and and uh, the Contras and all of that. This is, this is from, uh, the um, Nicaragua, I believe by uh, John Pilger. Here is a scene uh, from that uh, clip from from that uh, great documentary from 1984, 85, uh, where he goes into uh, the past and the current at the time, in 85, what the US was doing. We'll we'll be right back after this little clip from uh, Nicaragua, 1985 by John Pilger. Okay, so you see there you see there what the the CIA and the U.S. government was doing. They were lying. Uh, they were trying to get congressional aid through lies. They were blaming they're blaming the Sandinistas for sending arms to El Salvador. Uh, they would stop at nothing uh, to overthrow uh, that regime. Uh, but it was rather brutal. What is what is your um, not your memory, but what you uh, have learned down there about the the, the 80s uh, U.S. policy in Nicaragua.
4: Well, so many things. I mean, you, you've you talked about it a lot, and, and you could speak about it better than I could, but I, I did an interview recently with the Nicaraguan ambassador to the United Nations, and he spoke, and you can find that at thegrayzone.com, and, and he spoke about how the U.S., according to the International Criminal Court, Never, it, the U.S. is supposed to pay Nicaragua reparations, and it never did. And but the, the the important thing to stress about that, I mean, that history is very important. But it's also important to understand that that history never really ended, and that those same policies are continuing today to a lesser degree, but through sanctions. Through the I mentioned the 2018 coup attempt, the U.S. is using the same policies now in Venezuela. But I, I mentioned that history because I was trying to explain, I wanted to answer your question, because it's an important question about understanding why Ortega is so insistent on running for reelection. And I, I think we have to go back to understand the what happened in the neoliberal era between 1990 and 2006. There were several very corrupt neoliberal governments. And what happened is the Sandinista front slightly changed. They realized that they that The Soviet Union was overthrown, the socialist countries in the Eastern Bloc were overthrown in a series of coups, and they recognized that the the, the Marxist-Leninist political movement had been largely defeated, and they were gonna rebrand as democratic socialism. So when they finally took power again in democratic elections, they won the election in 2006, the Sandinista Front made a lot of concessions. They made concessions to the Catholic Church, They made concessions on economic issues and they 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 previously had that maximalist Marxist Leninist Cuba style vision and they became a more social democratic style model in 2007 when they took power so that that's strictly because they wanted to win the election and there's an element of opportunism but it's also the reality of they 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 saw the brutality that they had to live through of war and they realized that In order to avoid more terror contra wars and sanctions, we have to make these concessions. And the thing about that is that when Ortega and other members of the Sandinista Front made that remodeling of the party, they understood that Ortega as a figure, polls show that he was more popular than the Sandinista Front as a front. Although, as I said, consistently all of the polling, including opposition firms, they all have to admit the fact that the Sandinista front is by far the largest party and that that changes it it ranges from having around 60 percent of support going down to right now it's about 40 percent of support because of the coronavirus and other things but it's still by far the largest port party but if you look at polls of ortega his support is consistently higher in fact before the 2018 coup attempt polls showed that he had between 70 up to words of 80 percent approval. So I think one of the reasons that they're so insistent on having Ortega run is because he as an individual is more popular than the Sandinista front, even though again the Sandinista front's the most popular party. And then I think the other fact so there's the fact of of the fact that they're operating within bourgeois dem- democracy and they still have electoral politics. They still have an election, unlike in Cuba where they don't have to worry about winning a presidential election because they have control completely over the state in Nicaragua like like in Venezuela they came back through the pink tide through this progressive wave of elections and they never took control of the entire state apparatus so that's an issue plaguing Venezuela in Venezuela there are still institutions including large parts of the economy that remain remain in private hands they don't have control over and then that gets to the second part of my answer to that question about why Ortega is insistent on staying as the presidential candidate. And it's because they're afraid that if they have another candidate take over who doesn't have the same command of popular support and who doesn't have the same aura of authority, that there there will be a coup. And I think that honestly, that's an understandable fear if you look at the situation in Bolivia. Because this is the same criticism that's leveled against Evo Morales who was actually in power even longer than Daniel Ortega. And he, he won again his fourth term in Bolivia, his fourth democratic term. Ortega's running for his third. So in, in the case of Bolivia, he won his, he, fair and square, Evo Morales won his fourth term. And there were a lot of people on the left, including self-declared socialists, who criticized Evo Morales, saying that he was becoming a dictator, saying that he just wanted more power. Actually, the reality is that Evo Morales, unfortunately, he he recognized that his movement, his party, was not strong enough to overcome a coup. And that's exactly what happened, is they had a coup against him, and now what's going on? There's a fascist military junta in Bolivia which has delayed the elections again and again and again. There's never gonna be elections because they don't care about elections. Their criticism of Evo and Ortega is a a hypocritical criticism They don't care about the fact that they have the same leader in office. What they really want is they want to use that as a criticism to remove them from power so they can install a neoliberal regime again, so they can exploit the country.
1: Not everybody uh, in Nicaragua wants to see a neoliberal uh, regime. Uh, I think the big problem is, is, and I've I've told friends of mine down there uh, that oppose Ortega, I said, the fact of the matter is nobody has developed uh, some kind of formula that would appeal to uh, a vast majority or at least a large plurality of the public. I mean, what are you going to offer uh, those? I mean, there is still a pretty good semblance of healthcare that you cannot find in Honduras, El Salvador or Guatemala. There are free clinics. I've been to one when I was there and I cut my finger. Uh, They didn't charge me. Uh, So that still exists. Uh, Maybe not as strong as it was in, in the 70s, but. That's something that people basic needs uh, and uh, an education. I when I was in Ometepe, I saw a lot of kids uh, running to school in their blue and white, uh, you know, school outfits uh, going to school. So, you know, I'm not sure if you see that uh, in the other countries in the, in that region. Um, the uh, the other question is here, you know, because as I said, I I said to. Uh, both to uh, Kinzer and to Alejandro Vandadi is that Nicaragua, there is, uh, it's like Spain in in my heart, that that, uh, great uh, book by uh, Adam Hochschild uh, about the Abraham Lincoln brigade and those people came back and that's all they ever talked about. For me, the 80s were the best years of my life. And I'm not talking about doing the Tonight Show with Johnny Carson, I'm talking about those six years more or less that I was in Nicaragua because I had a lot of hope and it did uh, it, it was exciting to be down there and i saw such radical change uh happening and so that's that's um you know i i want that to continue you know i don't want to see that die i want it to continue and i say to them some of the the opponents uh, you know and some of them are very bourgeois and i say well what is it that you have to offer uh wh- why can't you get a party together get behind a candidate And 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 give a plan that would uh, undermine whatever uh, the current uh, government, the FSLN government, uh, has to offer. Why not? I mean, does anyone have a proposal like that that you know of? Uh, That's a question that hasn't been answered for me by, and I haven't asked everybody, uh, leaders of all of these uh, disparate parties. There's so many parties down there. Um, It's like Italy, you know. There's a million parties. Uh, So they can't coalesce behind one candidate and no one can stand out. And that gives the uh, Sandinistas the edge. And I I don't see it
4: forthcoming. Do you? Absolutely not. Because, like I was saying earlier, these opposition parties are largely fringe and they don't have the support of the majority of Nicaraguans who, let's face it, are very poor. This is the second poorest country in the Western Hemisphere after Haiti. And what's incredible is that I've been throughout many countries in Latin America, and I've been to neighboring Honduras, which is technically on paper richer than Nicaragua. But if you're walking the streets of Tegucigalpa, or I went to L'Esperanza in the countryside, which is where Berta Cáceres is from, Nicar- Nicaragua seems like a way richer country than Honduras, even though actually Nicaragua is much poorer, and that's because Nicaragua is the fourth most equitable country in Latin America. Nicaragua the agriculture
1: has- is. The agriculture in Nicaragua is unmatched. I mean, I could walk around uh, all the way from Managua through Masaya uh, to Nikinomo and uh, down to San Juan del Sur and pick fruit, pataya and papaya uh, along the way and stay alive. So there's and the and the plantons in in uh, in uh, Ometepe, which they ship to. They come all the way from El Salvador to buy the plantons in. Did you know that in Ometepe, my friend. Uh, Cesar, he has a, a finca there, finca San Juan, and they got like the most beautiful, huge uh, plantons. So, I mean, the in fact, the uh, former president of of the uh, of the Sudan said, if we had Nicaraguan's land, we wouldn't be in this
4: shape. Yeah, absolutely. And the and the thing about Nicaragua is, we should understand that that's a new policy in the neoliberal era. The as with many neoliberal governments in Latin America. They prioritized foreign investment. It's always what they talk about foreign investment, foreign investment, as opposed to national domestic production. And they imported a lot, especially food. And that's, that's definitely a problem plaguing a lot of Central America. In Nicaragua, one of the things that the Sandinista Front has implemented since 2006, when they won the election and entered in 2007, they have really prioritized food sovereignty partially because they also recognized that in the 1980s, one of the biggest problems that they faced during the Contra Terror War and the blockade was that the US blockade prevented them from importing things. So they had a lot of, I'm sure you remember, there were many shortages of things like toilet paper, of soap, of products. So they, they instead, when they came back to power in 2007, they realized we have to encourage domestic production of all of our necessities. So, Nicaragua is one of the only countries in Latin America that is food sovereign. It produces nearly 100% of its food and all of the staples. So, milk, wheat, corn, tomatoes, uh, beef, all of those, they produce, uh, of course, beans. In fact, Nicaragua exports beans to numerous countries, including certain states in the U.S. So it's, it's pretty impressive. that That's one of the most important gains of the Sandinista front. And it's one of the reasons that, although US sanctions are really hurting Nicaragua, they're not hurting, them, they're not hurting Nicaragua as much as they hurt Venezuela. Because Venezuela has a unique history, and this is a history that very much predates Chavismo. And this is something that Sandinismo has actually been able to accomplish that, that Chavismo was not able to accomplish. And that's that for one, over 100 years, Venezuela has been a petro state. For all of the series of regimes before the Chavistas, before Hugo Chavez came into power in elections in 1998, the, all of the previous governments, they just prioritized using the state, well, before it was privatized, but then in the 1970s under a nationalist government before Chavismo, they, they partially nationalized the, the oil company, Pedavesa, and the government always and the bourgeoisie in Venezuela always used the oil wealth to fund their social programs, which didn't even really exist that much, but to fund government expenditure, the military and everything. And when Chavismo came into power, they they realized that they could use the massive oil wealth to fund all of their social programs. And they they did a good job until the blockade by the U.S., the sanctions which began under Obama, and then until the price of oil fell, which the the U.S. blockade is the most important factor, but also the, the massive plummeting of the Global price of oil. Those are the two most important factors behind the economic crisis in Venezuela Nicaragua on the other hand has not suffered the same economic crisis It has not suffered the same food shortages because Nicaragua produces all of its food It's, it's actually really incredible and it's one of the reasons that a lot of people who are interested in sustainable agriculture and sustainable development interested in green technology and environmental policy they're actually looking to Nicaragua as a very positive example of that.
1: Well, listen, I'm looking forward to coming down there and uh, checking the scene out uh, on my own. I haven't been there in five or six years and having uh, a plate full of uh, casillos and uh, gallo pinto with a large glass of pataya. all right? And um, I must say, this has been a long interview and we could go on forever. I'm gonna have to like uh, continue this. I- I'm sure in the next few days, There will be somebody in Nicaragua that is going to want to counter what you uh, just took us through. And then you'll want to counter what they and we could have an ongoing series here. Uh, But uh, Ben, that was um, a fascinating, uh, you know, discussion. I mean, I I, I really enjoyed it. Um, And I hope people in Nicaragua, uh, you know, like at least uh, look at this objectively and you have an opinion here. Uh, He and I agree on some, we may disagree on others, uh, but the uh, underlying uh, similarity in in philosophy that we have is our knowledge is that if there's a vacuum down there, the U.S. government is gonna go in there and gobble it up, all right? That's the big problem that I fear, if there's some kind of vacuum and the U.S. government watches uh, these factions uh, fight it out, and uh, they'll just come in, have the pretext, and just kind of take it over. That's what I'm concerned with, especially when you have assholes, uh, insidious uh, human beings like Elliot Abrams and uh, uh, Mike Pompeo. These are some of the most perverse people on the planet, and no one should be uh, taking money from them or be associated uh, with them. They should denounce them and say, stay the hell out of our affairs. Um, this is, we didn't even get to Nicaragua and Bolivia. I totally agree with you on Bolivia. That was a very sad day, This sick, uh, what's her name, Asna or Anya? Janine Agnes. Yeah, Agnes, yeah. Well, you know, she's she's worse than Marie Antoinette uh, times Ava uh, Braun, all right? The worst person <laughs> on the planet. Uh, and um, and we'll talk more about Venezuela. Uh, we'll do this again. I mean, this I, I'm fascinated because, you know, And I'm I'm hoping to come down there to see you when uh, they allow Americans to come in. But since we're such a uh, covid uh, plague country, they may close the airport, Sandino Airport, across the street from Los Mercedes, where I did my last comedy show in 1988.
4: Uh, Well, Well, U.S. flights were just delayed for the third time, but there will be new flights again maybe in September, if they don't delay it again. But the Nicaraguan government has a policy saying that any foreign travelers who don't have Nicaraguan citizenship who want to enter the country have to have a coronavirus test from three days before. Well, so I'm gonna talk US- to Jaime Hermitez. Are you talking about Jaime Hermitez? Is he the Sorry? ambassador?
1: Is it Jaime Hermitez? Is Jaime Hermitez like uh, the uh, UN envoy or is it somebody else?
4: No, Arguello. Oh, okay. Somebody said but, it was But But the thing about, traveling here is I would highly recommend anyone I mean not just people from the US it's it's a very safe country it's very nice I mean it's very hot you have to get used to the climate but it's it's really nice and I just want to thank you Randy oh and I was gonna say that you don't need a visa which which is nice they still which is incredible the Nicaraguan government for US citizens I mean because they still want to encourage tourism you can as a US citizen can enter or a Canadian citizen or Europeans and many others can enter Nicaragua for ninety days, and all you have to do is pay ten dollars. Ten
1: dollars. It's still ten dollars. It was ten dollars ten years ago, so it didn't go up.
4: Yeah, and, and I'll people say, should I go down You there. Andy, should Andy, see San Juan you know. del Sur.
1: Sorry. Well, I said people should go down there because um, you know you want to see Leon, you want to see Esteli, you want to go to Madagapa, you want to see, uh, you want to go down to San Juan del Sur. It's at the greatest surfing beaches on the planet. Um, and, and Ometepe is a Colombian a prehistoric uh, island in Lake Nicaragua, where they have shark. And uh, they also have the howling monkeys, uh, the great, how- and, the, and the ones with that, the smile, they're called the uh, uh, Kera something, the ones with the uh, Kera Blanca, something like that. Uh, the monkeys, the little ones that come out. You gotta get to Ometepe. It's the most beautiful piece of land, or as George Schultz would say, the greatest piece of real estate. Uh in, uh in Central America but it it is and, and it is safe it definitely is safe uh, much safer to go there than it is to go to Portland right now um,
4: ben yeah, Norman, Randy, I, I want to thank you for having me on I know I hope your friends don't attack you but I it's it's great I mean it, it shows that you you really do are you very principled for encouraging a debate and and having different perspectives on your platform a lot of people don't do that these days. So I, I think it's good to encourage that. Well, I, I, really I invite anyone down there that wants, and, and you'll you'll do it, right? If I get, get a
1: debate, you'll participate if I can get someone to debate you
4: one-on-one? I would love to, I would love to. I, and we should also just keep in mind that, and I think it's a great idea, and it's important to have these debates in, in English, but I think we should also keep in mind that uh, that a lot of people in the US who are interested in these topics, they're missing out on 95% of the debates in the conversation because it's in Spanish. And, and a lot of people, especially in the left in Latin America, because they come from more per, poor working class, humble backgrounds, they don't speak English. So there's a lot of other debates happening in Spanish, but I'm glad that, we're, that we are talking about it in English because it's important to, to, to have these debates in English as well.
1: Okay, well, um this was Assange's Countdown to Freedom. We did talk about him up front. And uh, if you just want to uh, hear about Assange, you know, go back and listen to it from the top because we spent the first 10, 12 minutes uh, talking about Assange and we've done 36 shows uh, talking about Julian Assange and we will continue. Uh, ben Norton from the Gray Zone, Gray Zone News uh it's grayzone.com right is that the 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 gray zone the
4: grayzone dot com yeah. and I'm with, kidding, with an a the the yankee spelling g-r-a-y all
1: right uh, g-r-a-y it's uh, the yankee okay that's talking about the confederate <laughs> spelling the blue and the gray all right so it's the grayzone uh news dot
4: com that's
1: it right and uh, the, no some... it's just
4: the grayzone.com dot com
1: all right it's the gray zone and then on twitter you're at uh, just uh, ben norton or something ben, like that. No, Benjamin Norton. But yeah, people, you can just if you just Google it, you can find it. All right, all right. I'm sure you're going to get some feedback on this one. And say hello to uh, Anya and to uh, Max and to Aaron and all the other fine journalists, young journalists uh, who uh, grace uh, the, the grayzone.com All right, Ben. Thank Norton. you, Randy.
4: It's- and stay stay safe in New York. I know it's pretty scary over there. Yeah,
1: well, I'm not there. I'm, I'm like many many uh, miles away, all right? On horseback, all
4: yeah, right? Well, like Sandy well, you're in New York State. You're still in still the state.
1: Yeah, well, I got Cuomo to worry about. I'm sure he's got uh, the search dogs looking for me. All right, thanks a lot, uh, Ben Norton, and we'll talk to you soon. All right, we'll be right back after this music from the 1983 Concert for Peace that took place in Managua. We'll be right back with some closing thoughts. Se partió en
5: Nicaragua otro hierro caliente, se partió en Nicaragua otro hierro caliente, porque el águila daba, se señala a la gente, porque el águila daba, se señala a la gente. Se partió en Nicaragua otra zona con sel. se partió en Nicaragua otra zona con sel.
1: Love that music. Um, that was a long interview. with Ben Norton got a good sense of humor too. So does Alejandro Binda. A lot of a lot of my friends. I hang out with people that got a sense of humor. You know, I, I don't want to be around a dull lot. I don't care how bad life is. Uh, try to, you know, keep on smiling, and uh, it will help you uh, get along. Uh, this is um, episode thirty-seven: of Songs Countdown to Freedom. And really focused on, like I said, the debate in, in Nicaragua going on. I want to thank Kelly Lane, engineer and uh, the editor, uh, out of North Carolina. I want to thank uh, Emily and Sarah Kunser for maintaining that uh, website. And Margaret Ratner Kunzer for helping me, uh, you know, put together these uh, these programs, the scripts, and writing up the descriptions. And uh, we need your help, folks. We have this like seven or eight weeks before uh, Julian Assange uh, is back. Uh, in that, uh, in the hot box, in, the, in, the, in that uh, horrible, horrible, horrible situation behind a glass cage as if he was Eichmann or something treated like a war criminal when he's a hero, when uh, he is uh, uh, a journalist. And, and, and anyone who's a journalist that doesn't get behind him, to me, he's just a traitor. That's why you're a traitor to your profession. That's, that's the only way I look at you. If you don't support Julian you're not a journalist. You're just a traitor. Uh, to your profession, and you should do something else. Um, so, but we need uh, support if you uh, would like to continue to see this programming, and it is getting more diverse. It's, it's mostly about Assange, but we go into different areas. And uh, if you'd like to see this, uh, go to AssangeCountdownThatFreedom.com. We don't make any salaries here. Uh, we, but we do have expenses, I mean, believe me, it's like a lot of time goes into all of this and kind um, of maintain stuff. Uh, and I'd like to go to the uh, trial in London. So if you'd like to see this, you know we're dedicated and uh, we are not in the uh, in the business of making money off of Julian Assange, we're, we're looking to uh, help get him out of that situation by getting out the information. Uh, to uh, those who are confused or those who don't understand uh how important how grave uh his uh, situation is uh, to the future of journalism first amendment and the free press and free speech all right we're going to go out with uh, no pasaran this is for my good friend uh, paco valencia he requested it so uh paco this is uh, to you and to all of my friends down there in the great uh, country, the great people of Nicaragua. We'll see you next. Vendrá
5: la guerra amor y en el combate No habrá tregua ni freno para el canto
2: Sino poesía haciendo incontenible Del cañón de fusiles
5: libertarios
2: Vendrá la guerra amor y en el combate
5: Nos fundiremos En las barricadas, deteniendo las hordas criminales, a punta de corazón, fuego y metralla, cavando sudorosos el futuro en las faldas de la paz. Aquí están los cachorros de San mañana que irrumpa el nuevo día con su fiesta de pájaros y niños. Aunque no estemos juntos, te lo juro, el nuevo día con su fiesta de pájaros y niños aunque no estemos juntos te lo juro no no pasará vendrá la guerra amor Y yo me envolveré en tu sombra invencible como un fiero león que proteger esta tierra y mis cachorros, nadie, nadie detendrá esta victoria armada de futuro hasta los dientes, que truene hasta la frontera, ¡Luchamos para vencer! Pa el nuevo día con su fiesta de pájaros y niños. aunque no estemos juntos, te lo juro. No, no pasará. ¿Qué haces, No pasará. Nos venceremos, amor. No pasarán si mañana que romp- el nuevo día con su fiesta de pájaros y niños aunque no estemos juntos te lo juro